0: Ourselves Black is a place where we own the narrative and are unapologetic about our goal to share imagery, information, and stories infused with knowledge that promotes Black mental health. This is the Ourselves Black podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Y. Vincent. On today's edition of the Ourselves Black podcast, part one of a two part discussion about interfacing with the mental health system with guest expert Dr. Philip Murray. Dr. Philip Murray is from Decatur, Georgia, and completed undergraduate studies at Howard University in Washington, D.C. He received his medical degree from the Medical College of Georgia and completed his adult psychiatry residency at Harvard Medical School, Cambridge Health Alliance, in 2014. He completed a child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at the New York Presbyterian Hospital program of Columbia and Cornell universities. Dr. Murray most recently obtained his master's in public health with a focus in health management from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health through the Commonwealth Commonwealth Fund Fellowship and Minority Health Policy. Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Ourselves Black podcast. We have back as a repeat guest, Dr. Phil Murray. Dr. Murray, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Ganton.
0: So, if you didn't catch part one of our conversation with Dr. Murray, you definitely want to check that out. He talks in kind of general terms about the children's mental health systems and how challenging they are. legitimately challenging um, for patients, families, professionals, Um, but in this show, we're gonna talk more about it as it relates to um, black mental health. So, Doc, when we're thinking about these, these systems and children's mental health, what are some unique considerations when it comes to black communities and black mental health?
1: So, I think the biggest thing when it comes to black communities specifically is, and I am addressing things from my specific experience as being a black person in America, so don't, I'm not going to say this is a blanket thing, but I think a lot of it just has to do with the general privacy that comes with sensitive topics. You know, the general overview is don't let everybody in your business. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to mental health issues, specifically with your kids, those are very charged topics you know, you're really getting feedback on literally how you're raising your kids, and that is a taboo subject. You're getting feedback on what goes on behind closed doors, different ways to do things. And so there are a lot of touchy areas, not to mention on top of that, just historical mistreatment of the black community by the medical establishment. Uh, we've heard of the issues of Henrietta Lacks, with the Tuskegee experiment, all these other types of things. And so... All of that kind of leads to a historical mistrust. And so to get people to open up and keep in mind, stigma for mental health is not something that only occurs in the black community, but it is definitely increased. And so that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges. Um, And not to mention sometimes, unfortunately, in this country, black people are at the lower end of the income spectrum. And so there are a lot of issues that come with that. And so having to deal with social issues or their concerns about interacting with the system, uh, the Department of Social Services and things like that, all of those things can play into families not necessarily seeking help.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, there are certain, certainly things um, that are problematic historically, um, but we also have the present day. Um, racism that you know we see in society more broadly that unfortunately, given the stakes, medicine is not immune to.
1: Right. No, I definitely uh, agree. And the thing is, there are so many problematic things that kind of come up. I'm going to blanket quote some uh, different studies here, but one thing, just surveys that they've done with medical students, feeling that African American patients have a much higher pain threshold. Than other patients, and so leading to decrease in pain medications. There are studies showing implicit bias leading to difference in not just things that are prescribed for chest pain or other things, but also how people are literally diagnosed. There are studies showing that when it comes to a black patient and a non-black patient coming in with similar presentations, and when I say presentations, I mean showing the same types of symptoms or issues. Some are diagnosed with bipolar disorder, some are diagnosed with schizophrenia, and this can lead to different views of prognosis, aggression, agitation, and just ways to treat this. And so in the past, it was a bit more overt in the way that it came out, and now it's covert, and it can be just as harmful in the long run.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, in some ways, when it's covert, it is even more crazy making because. You don't know if it's real or not, and so you spend a lot of energy trying to figure out what's happening.
1: And not just that. A lot of times, even from the research side of things, it's much harder to prove or demonstrate. Yeah. And so with the move in medicine over the past 10 years, and especially psychiatry, to introduce just more and more evidence for a number of things, it is very hard to prove this and also come up with roadmaps for ways that systems can Address this. There have been moves along what we call the health equity front trying to solve what we call health disparities, which are bad outcomes for different groups, usually based on race or ethnicity with similar conditions. And so now there's a larger language around it. The buzzword these days is kind of social determinants of health, kind of looking at things outside of the medical establishment that lead to bad health outcomes. And when you boil it down to it, it's really just the effects of poverty, racism, and a lot of inequalities that occur today in the U.S.
0: So when you're talking about uh, children's mental health, and certainly we know there is a biology and environment interface. It's not one. It's not entirely one, not entirely the other. Um, But a huge part of a child's environment is family and parents and how they go about that job of raising kids. And so when you start talking about cultural competence or cultural humility, um, you know, there are lots of things that go into culture, but how you think about raising children and the process you apply to that is a huge one. And like you alluded to earlier, like a really loaded one. And so that idea of cultural competency as it relates to children's mental health, um, I think is a even potentially bigger issue um, in terms of understanding that and, and the lens that people may be using when they're trying to raise kids and some of those conflicts that can occur when you have black parents trying to prepare their black children for society and providers who may not understand their, their perspective.
1: Right. I mean, and that's the other thing when it comes to cultural competency, I feel like a lot of times people put it into you know, kind of this, and this is my interpretation. not that anybody said it, but basically making it fluff, making it seem like an affirmative action piece or a way for a diversity tagline or things like that. and no, in the grand scheme of things, it is just becoming more proficient at meeting people's needs, and I think a lot of times that gets lost in a lot of the dialogue and rhetoric and political cues, and it's no, we're just trying to treat people better, and especially when it comes to mental health, and specifically mental health for kids, buy-in is a huge piece of your treatment plan. If you don't get the parents to trust you, they're not going to carry out any of these interventions that we come up with. And I think one of the biggest things that I've learned through all these years of training, Lord, it was about a year of training, uh, is basically I can't make anybody do anything. And I think a lot of times, whether it's referrals from other medical services whether it's referrals from schools, whether it's referrals from even parents, people think you bring somebody in and they have to do what you say and you can automatically fix them because you're imbued with some special powers. And that's <laughs> not the case. No, and man. never the case. And especially when it comes to trying to adjust the family, adjusting parents and everything else because, all right, let's say I'm a pediatrician. A kid comes in and they're overweight, has diabetes, doesn't get enough exercise. Let's say I talk to the kid and I tell the kid everything they need to know about healthy living, making a grocery list, and everything else. Well, in general, kids don't do anything in a household. As my mom would allude to, I didn't pay any bills in the house growing up, so I'm not going to be able to make those changes. And so I think a lot of times we can get bogged down and good information automatically leads to change. But if you come at somebody outside of their cultural context, you're not going to get that buy-in, you're not going to get that trust, and nothing will change. And on top of that, they'll probably never come back to the health system because it's just a waste of time for them. And so not only then have you lost treating that child, you can't make that intervention in that family, and things just kind of continue to go in a bad way until they get worse.
0: So from a family perspective, if you are working with a provider and it doesn't feel as if they, one, are really trying to understand what your experience of life is and, two, aren't trying to kind of meet you at a place that matches where you are and with what feels doable to you, then that's probably not the best fit.
1: No, it is not the best fit. But the issue is because there are so many barriers to access, there aren't that many providers. I'm not saying don't deal with it. But you have to be patient in how you deal with it, because unfortunately, sometimes the alternative is you can go months or years without treatment. And so first and foremost, I would say as much as you can, speak to the provider about it. And I am not delusional. I understand within the doctor-patient relationship, there is a power dynamic that definitely comes up. And so a lot of people don't feel that they can give feedback or anything like that, but At the end of the day, it is still your body, your life, your situation. And so I do feel like you should see if there's any way to talk about it within the treatment relationship. Now, if you're feeling like this provider is just not going to work, in the event that you're within a larger clinic or organization, see if you can switch. And then from there, continue with this provider until they set you up with somebody else. I think it's good to have a bridge. Because the alternative is, I have seen it sometimes where people come in, they get to a certain point on a medication, to a certain point of treatment, and just leave abruptly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can lead to other problems as you're transitioning out that you didn't come in with, whether it's dealing with medication side effects, behavioral side effects, anything like that. And so I think those are things to keep in mind. And I am completely acknowledging that this isn't easy to do, but I do want to at least kind of provide that perspective and let you guys know what would be an ideal situation but also get sometimes you just got to go <laughs> so yeah
0: and and i think uh, you know and that and that's an important first piece is that you you tell them if if they come up with a plan and they're excited about it and being really directive if you can't do it they want to know because right. any provider knows that the best plan is the one that you can actually execute
1: absolutely Absolutely. That cannot be stated enough. So, yes, I agree totally.
0: Yeah, we want to hear that. And so we have talked about what a challenge this system is. Um, And I think Dr. Murray and I both um, are aware of those challenges and in some ways are, are energized to advocate because of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Dr. Mary, I wanted to see if you'd be willing to speak a little bit about the role of advocacy, um, you know, not just from the physician community, but from the general public and why this should be something on people's radar, um, in terms of improving the system.
1: Honestly, advocacy from the general public, I think is probably more important and, uh, advocacy from the physician community. I agree. Uh, to be transparent, a lot of times advocacy from the physician community can be for services, but it can also be for things related to delivering those services, and that's one thing, and that definitely has its place. But at the end of the day, the services that we're advocating for won't matter if people can't get to them or people don't really desire them. Uh, and so there are a number of ways to advocate. I feel like. At least for me, being a physician, a lot of times people talk about lobbying government agencies and going to meet with Congress people and senators and all that stuff. And that's definitely important. But there are things that you can do at a local level. Uh, One thing that definitely came up, a great example, is there was a hospital I was working at and they were threatening or saying that they had to combine the adolescent unit and the child's unit because of cost and demand and things like that. And so what this would have done was eliminated a lot of beds for children under a certain age. And so this would have led to a further crisis and inability for us to really treat kids as they needed to. So the public got wind of it. It made its way into a local paper. The hospital ended up having a town hall, and people came out and pretty much raised hell until they had to reverse their decision. And so that is a very effective way of doing things. Uh, and so there are different levels of it. But if those people hadn't shown up, because I assure you, doctors were advocating within the hospital, but that's only one voice. If the public hadn't shown up and if there wasn't that powerful response, it would have gone on as planned. And so I think there's a lot of pressure within the system, but a lot of that can be alleviated by just advocacy all the way around. Uh, and that doesn't mean that people, patients, families can't go talk to Congress people, but I'm saying that's not the only thing. And I think a lot of times uh, NANI, as we mentioned earlier, can be helpful, and forgive me because my mind is going, I didn't uh, speak about the specialty organizations such as the American Psychiatric Association, American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the American Association of Pediatrics, not to mention the American Psychology Association, and Associations dedicated to social work, nursing, and other specialties. All of these organizations kind of provide further resources and sometimes even toolkits on how to carry out advocacy.
0: Excellent, excellent, and and it and it can it can make a difference. And I, I'm so glad that you shared that example uh, because mm-hmm. I think part of the issue is it just seems so big, but on a local level, you really can have your voice heard in a different way sometimes.
1: Oh yeah, that was a quick. Uh, that one was a matter of weeks. While, you know, if you're looking for a piece of legislation or something, it can take years for it to move and it can have a huge impact. But I assure you the impact to that community that those beds stayed open was immeasurable. Yeah.
0: And so if you were interested in what Dr. Murray was, was talking about today, and I'm sure if you've made it to this point, you you were, you certainly <laughs> want to refer back to uh the first part of this conversation. Um, Dr. Murray, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and if people are interested in hearing more from you or learning more uh, or even exploring ways to collaborate, what's the best way for them to get into contact with you?
1: Uh, the best way to reach me is uh, via Twitter. Uh, my handle is at uh, Phil Murray MD. Phil, P H I L, Murray M U uh, R A Y M D. Just send me a tweet, send me a message, like I said, part one. I don't tweet very often, but I'm usually on there. I get notifications, so I'll respond to you pretty quickly.
0: Cool. Thanks, Doc. Absolutely. Let me notate that one. All right, home stretch. All right, so this is the Peds Mental Health segment. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. And this is part two of our discussion with Dr. Phil Murray about the children's mental health system. Dr. Murray, welcome back. Thank you so much, Dr. Ben. And so... You know, we talked in kind of broad strokes about the pediatric mental health system and some basic terminology and um, some of the very real challenges that that the system presents to patients and families and providers. Um, and so, I wanted to, given this platform, PedsMentalHealth.com, dot uh, com, talk about some of the unique considerations when it comes to that interface between the children's mental health system and the primary care system. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, as we talked about in Section 1, there are a number of ways that people can get into the mental health system. And I think because we're calling it mental health, people feel like it's something that's totally separate from health in general. And that's not the case. Uh, It's a piece of the same puzzle. And so a lot of times we have to work very closely with our primary care providers and colleagues on the primary care side. Uh, So this isn't limited to just pediatricians, but family care doctors and things like that. And so a lot of times, the same way people and the public and patients can think that they're separate, unfortunately, the way medicine is set up, it can feel like they're separate as well. So you're going back and forth between different appointments. You have to go with different referrals and things like that. So I think a lot of times we need to do a much better job with the communication and coordination when it comes to going from primary care to mental health systems. Uh, And I think a lot of times, I think pediatricians uh, specifically do a great job of managing a lot of conditions. Uh, For adults and kids, those on the primary care side see way more people for mental health issues than we can see in our sector specifically, just because of things I mentioned earlier, such as lack of providers and access to care but sometimes things get complicated and a lot of times there needs to be more support there. Uh, And so there are just a number of things that can be potential barriers to people going from the primary care side of things to the mental health side of things.
0: And so with that said, if you are part of an integrated care team, whether it's as the care coordinator, a medical assistant, the primary care provider, Uh, the nurse, anyone. What are some important points for being an informed part of that team?
1: I think a lot of that really does have to do with coordination and being intentional about some of that coordination. I think one of the biggest things is being very clear about what we're doing. And so when I say what we're doing, I mean what we're treating, what are the goals of treatment, and the same thing for if somebody can't be contained, for lack of a better term, or appropriately treated on the primary care side of things, it needs to go to somebody a bit more specialized. Uh, when it comes to that coordination and everything else, within a pediatrics appointment, the doctor has 16 minutes to address everything. And so the more focused you can be, the more clear right. you can be, the better and more efficient that time can be used. Uh, and so I think a lot of times on the primary care side, it's being realistic about what you can handle and what you need help with. So that way you can do certain things in the house and send certain things to more specialized folks. And I think also one thing that needs to be done and is ideal is just kind of coordinating with systems. As we talked about in one of the earlier parts, you know, kids have to deal with schools, sometimes social organizations, families, the medical establishment, all these things. And so when we're coming up with diagnoses and everything else, it takes a lot of, of coordination and getting a lot of information and so if i'm in an integrated care network the ideal is that that information is flowing freely and on top of that making sure that medical issues are addressed and updated appropriately uh sometimes kids can look like they have a mental health condition and it's really a kind of side effect from an ongoing physical health condition that's not being treated appropriately and so i think all of these things uh kind of go into it. And another thing is just having as quick and efficient as possible access to different services. As we mentioned earlier, not everybody needs a full medical workup that leads to us prescribing medication. Sometimes it's a little bit of therapy. Sometimes it's a little bit of parent coordination and getting people to those right sources can definitely help ease the burden of the system.
0: And so when people are hearing this, um, I want to be really concrete here. Mm -hmm. What are things that they can do in clinic today that can help them with being more effective at making mental health referrals when they see that there's a need for that?
1: Okay. Uh, I think, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, some of these specialty organizations, so the American Association of Pediatrics uh, is doing a phenomenal job of trying to bring mental health care into uh, the primary care space. And so there they actually have a number of toolkits and things about diagnosing different conditions. Uh, there are forms and checklists that primary care providers can go through. Um, some use uh, the SNAP forms. Uh, for the uh, Vanderbilt forms or Pounders forms. And I think a lot of those are for ADHD and screening for things like that. Uh, They have pediatric equivalents of depression screens and anxiety screens. Uh, Historically, it's the PHQ-9 or the GAD-7. And so they have pediatric equivalents of that. And so that's something that can be filled out pretty quickly. And you can score that and you'll have some information on where somebody is in those uh, visits. And I think A big thing is just bringing in mental health questions into every interview so that way it's not something that's stigmatized and it's something that families can get more comfortable about and understand as a part of the regular medical visit. And so those are concrete things within that visit that people can do and incorporate pretty quickly and pretty easily. Now, the issue is if something comes up where somebody needs to be referred, that's where a lot of the legwork can really occur. And so, from there, I think being clear on the reason for referral and also between coordinators, case managers, and things like that, starting to understand the resources in your area. Uh, As we referenced earlier, mental health can vary by state, and honestly, it can vary by county because that's where a lot of the funding comes from. Mm -hmm. And so, understanding what referral sources are there uh, is something that's very important. And so, as providers begin to understand that, just being very clear about the reason you're referring somebody. And also making sure the family sign releases of information so the communication can go back and forth because I have seen it a lot of times where HIPAA laws, as well-intentioned as they are, and everything else, it can definitely lead to snags or hang-ups as people are trying to coordinate care because a form wasn't signed. And so the kid can be started on a medication and the primary care doctor doesn't know. And it just really can make management a little bit more difficult than it has to be.
0: Yeah. So sometimes it can be helpful to go ahead and get that release signed Mm -hmm. and send it over with the referral.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And doing that, like I said, ahead of time. And a lot of times it's better to just put things into a process instead of depending on yourself. uh, Because I know for me, just working in the emergency room, things can get busy and I'll forget to do something here or there. And so between. The individual provider, office staff, or whoever, as long as things can kind of go in a more organized fashion, the better off it is. Because I'll tell you right now, my memory is not 100% reliable. And so sometimes I can miss things. I'm human, just like any other provider.
0: And so, you know, we've talked about the system and some of the challenges. Um, and we often do think of advocacy from patient standpoints or from the standpoint of mental health professionals. But I do think that pediatric primary care providers have done a really admirable job of advocating for kids in this space.
1: Oh my God. Yes, they have. Uh, And I think a lot of that just comes from them realizing how much of a need there is. You know, as we talked about in the first segment, it's not like families are the only people frustrated with this providers who are on the ground every day are just as frustrated, if not more so, because it really does represent, it it really is a failure. uh, And it leads to just worse outcomes than things have to be. And a lot of it just takes kind of developing the will to get it done. And I have definitely seen my primary care colleagues at the front lines of this battle right there with us.
0: Yeah. Um, And in many ways, frankly, leading the charge.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And so Dr. Murray is the author of the chapter uh, interfacing with the mental health care system in the pediatric or in the pediatric mental health for primary care physicians. Uh, clinicians See, that's how book. hard
1: it is. It's hard to even get the title out. So I I'm know, right? Trying to, trying to advocate and change the
0: um, But yeah, so you can definitely read uh, more about it in his book. Um. In his chapter in the book, um, but I also wanted to make sure that people were aware of how to get in touch with Dr. Murray um, if they want him to speak about these things or want to continue the dialogue. So, uh, Doc, what's the best way for people to reach you?
1: Uh, the best way to make initial contact is uh, through my Twitter account. Uh, handle is at Phil Murray MD. Phil P H I L Murray M U R R A Y MD. Uh, I don't really tweet out too often, but I am usually there uh, soaking up loads and loads of information. So just reach out. I'll get the notification and I'll respond pretty quick.
0: Awesome. And definitely, um, if this show was of interest to you, you want to refer back to part one uh, with Dr. Murray. And, Doctor, thank you so much for taking a break from serving kids on, <laughs> on the front lines, on the ground level, uh, to speak with us today.
1: Dr. Manson, you know it is always